Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Real estate investing can generate great cash flow and personal freedom. With enough cash flow, you can choose where you want to live and when you want to work. Derek Clifford, founder and CEO of Elevate Equity, bought several single-family homes in Indianapolis before graduating to multifamily properties with better cash flow. He's now enjoying a several-month stay in European destinations as he runs his real estate business remotely. So today we have with us a very interesting guy, man. We've been talking and talking and talking. I mean, we just hit it off, boom, when we, when we connected here and having a great conversation. Interesting guy. And we'll get into the details apart, by the way, from real estate, but real estate being included and certainly the purpose for this conversation. We have with us a guy that's doing great things in multifamily. He is the CEO of Elevate Equity, helping others achieve the freedom he has. And just a a cool dude, man. His name is Derek Clifford. Derek, welcome to Street Smart Success. Hey, Roger. It is such a pleasure to be here. And uh, thanks for inviting me. And man, I just, I just really hope I live up to that intro. That is, uh, that's, some, that's some really heavy compliments there, but I, I really enjoy it. And it's great to be here and talk with you. You got it. And I feel it. And uh, no, uh, gosh, man, um, I'm kind of like just reeling from the conversation we've had so far. So Derek, you were, and maybe will still be, I get that it's undecided, but you certainly were a, a fellow Bay Area guy and we'll let you get into that. Uh, but I want to go back further than that. I want to go like, okay, man, where where did you grow up? Where are you from? I know you did school in Denver, but I are you from that part of the country or where is Derek from? Yeah, you know, I actually grew up in Los Angeles. I was born in Pasadena and, you know, my, my mom and dad, they, they lived in California and Southern California their whole lives. And, you know, at about like the, in the mid nineties, uh, my dad decided or was recognizing that things were getting really crowded there. Lots of traffic, lots of rude people down there. Uh, he just didn't like it. He was getting sick of it and wanted to change. So he pretty much just up and moved the entire family to Colorado. And, you know, lucky for me, that was right at the time when I was getting ready to go into high school. And my brother was entering middle school. So it was just the, the perfect timing. And so we ended up uh, making that transition. Uh, and I went ahead and went to school, uh, you know, in, in, in high school, graduated from high school there and went to the Colorado School of Mines in Golden, uh, just outside of Denver, training to be a chemical engineer. And if you ask me why I picked chemical engineering, Roger, I really didn't have any idea what I wanted to do. All I did was, I think a year before taking the SATs or while I was taking the SATs and figuring out what school to get into, I was looking at what degree yields the highest salary out of, out of, <laughs> out of school. And I literally just picked chemical engineering based on that criteria. So that's how I kind of fell into college. So nothing, nothing scientific there. But after that, um, just to, to summarize real quick, what happened then is I told myself that I was not going to A, work for the oil industry, and B, move to Texas um, after my chemical engineering degree was was over. And unfortunately, both of those things ended up coming to light. I ended up moving to Texas, getting into oil, and really started focusing on paying down the debt uh, of my student loans. Then shortly after that, after I got debt-free, I met my future wife uh, while she was visiting her family in Austin, Texas. And then, you know, we hit it off and I moved to Washington State and uh, we started dating out there. And then I made the transition into project management, uh, went to Berlin a few times to get my MBA, uh, found real estate at that point in time, uh, got disillusioned with the W-2 work, uh, and then moved down to the Bay Area um, to do work as a project manager for uh, a, a large company that you know, Roger, is such as, you know, you know, it's as PG&E. Um, then started building up a portfolio of rental properties on the side. Um, then eventually ran out of uh, single family loans and started looking for what the next step was. And pretty much at that point, everything is on autopilot to set me up to become a multifamily investor and syndicator and eventually lead me to leave my full time job in September uh, last year and pursue real estate investing full time. So um, hopefully that gives you enough of a background of where I'm coming from and uh, where I've been. 
It absolutely does in a, in a, in a very uh, succinct but complete, uh, comprehensive way. Although I say comprehensive, but how would I know? You might be leaving things out, but I know I assume it's <laughs> fully comprehensive. So when you were in high school and you're like, okay, so I'm not, I'm not going to, or a uh, college, I'm not going to get into the oil industry and I'm not going to move to Texas. I was kind of laughing going, what was the second part of that? Why, why was that? It, it was, it, or did you just construe them both to be the same thing or was it how I'm a Colorado guy? You know, I'd never moved to Texas. So where, where did that come from? Yeah, you know, um, because I, I spoke with a lot of people who had graduated ahead of me and ended up making the move to Texas. And they're like, don't do it. Because, I mean, you know, Roger, th- like I, I was I was raised in Southern California and I was going to high school in Colorado. Like these are really nice places. And there's nothing wrong with Texas out there, you guys. So all those listeners from Texas, there's nothing wrong with this. It's just that I'm more of like a an ocean and dry, like, you know, very dry air. Uh, and, and I like to have seasons, uh, more or less. Right. So moving to Texas was something that I just didn't, I, I didn't see in my future. I really just didn't want that because I, I, I didn't want the humidity and the heat. Cause I I'd been there before on a few trips and I'm just like, man, I don't know if I would want to live here, but, and then the second thing was oil. Like I, back in college, I really didn't want to impact the environment. And there's a lot of things that I was environmentally concerned about, but I wanted to still, you know, make my living. Uh, by designing some really cool biotechnology or things like that that would help people. But unfortunately, the reality set in, Roger, and, you know, I had student loans to pay. And so I made the really hard decision to just kind of, uh, you know, swallow some of those, uh, you know, just just ignore some of those, uh, I wouldn't say unrealistic, but unpractical uh, promises that I made to myself and just, you know, do what was needed to be done to pay off my loans and and be responsible uh, as an upstanding citizen there. So you're a practical, you're, you're a pragmatist. That's good. Yes. Yeah. So Roger, I remember, man, when I was going, even, even after I graduated school, more than 50% of what I was making was going to student loans. So I was the guy doing the Dave Ramsey thing, Roger, yep. uh, in, in right after graduating from school and making, you know, $70,000 right out of college, which was a lot of money back in the, you know, in the mid two thousands, right, right before the 2008 recession. And so, you know, making this money and, and paying off my student loans with it, I would, with my friends, they'd invite me to dinner, right? I would purposefully eat beans and rice and broccoli before going out to meet them at dinner. And when I got to dinner, all I would do was drink water. I was living off of $100 a month in food, Roger. So even, you know, even back then, that was pretty extreme. And looking back, I think it was kind of foolish, to be honest, but you know, I, I think that just shows the dedication that I have whenever I'm devoted to a goal, especially if it's financial and I recognize that there's a higher value or a longer term, uh, you know, bigger sacrifice that I'm making for something great in the end. Dude, I'm getting integrity and discipline. That, that's what I'm hearing. Uh, I'm like, wow, that is really phenomenal. You know what? In the early 90s and I had just started my business and I was broke and a few years earlier, my mother had passed away and I had, inher- I had inherited a little bit of money and I, and I was going backwards a little bit and, and it, yeah. it drove me insane. And I got to the point, I literally would not buy, and coffee, by the way, if you went to Starbucks at that time, which wasn't in NorCal yet, uh, they mm-hmm. were still up in Seattle. But the point is this, if you went and bought a cup of coffee at a cafe back then, it cost a dollar. And I wouldn't even do that because I, I, I made it at home. And that's what you're reminding me of. So, you know, I'd like to think I have some of the sensibilities that you're describing. And then then what happened okay. is I met my wife and uh, it got to the point where I tried to explain this mentality to her. And I could tell you many, many years later, she um, has resisted every every word of it. From me. And so <laughs> it became easier just to make more money with her. But um, anyway, yeah. and, 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 you know, and control the, the revenue side of the equation, because I just my wife is the opposite of you and me, where there's yep. never been anything that she wanted to buy in her entire life that she just didn't buy it. And, and having the money was, was ne- or not having the money or not was never an obstacle to her. They, she just um, used credit cards. But anyway, uh, yeah. in fact, you're I should introduce uh, her to Dave Ramsey. But anyway, 
I'm digressing and I got so lucky over the years that it ultimately it washed all her sins away. So why did you wind up when you came down from Wash State down to NorCal? Uh, why Brentwood as opposed to Walnut Creek or Marin or anywhere else? Yeah, you know, um, actually, when we when we made the move from Washington State down to California, um, this is actually a pretty good story. Let me let me start with this is how I got involved in real estate investing. And then I'll explain to you why we couldn't afford a property in the Bay Area at all, because we were renting the whole time, Roger, pretty much uh, a lot because we, we we jumped around like three or four times when we were in the Bay Area over over the course of like six or seven years um, up until, you know, uh, last year. But in any event, when we were in Washington State, my wife had purchased a condo in 2008 before me, before I had come along. And she had bought it like in, I think it was May or June of 2008 for $250,000. Now, you know, for most of the listeners, they understood looking back what had happened for the second half of 2000, of 2008, right? But no one knew that back then. You know, obviously everything, you know, in hindsight was spiking up like crazy and, and you know, the housing market was just on fire. Um, so she bought a property uh, for $250,000, a condo in Washington State right across from the university so she could walk to school. And about three months later, after the crash, the property was worth $90,000. So she ended up with this underwater mortgage for many, many years. And even when I came along in the picture and she had graduated from, from her uh, graduate school uh, to become a doctor, and we were looking to move to the Bay Area because that's where her residency was, the property was still underwater by like $50,000. So here we are four or five years later, you know, in 2012, 2013, and we couldn't sell this property. So what ended up happening, Roger, is like at the time, this is when I was starting to get disillusioned with my W-2 uh, and with corporate life and figuring out that even though I'm making the, the, the money, I'm making like X dollars per hour for the company, they're paying me like 10% of X every like, and that, that just really rubbed me the wrong way. And I started reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad and everything and was looking for ways to save up as much money as I could to live off of 4% of a stock portfolio, you know, uh, and it just didn't work. And I came across real estate by default because she had this property that we couldn't sell. And the only thing we could do to keep and hold on to it and just allow it to appreciate more is to rent it because we needed someone to pay the mortgage while we weren't even living there. And, you know, it just clicked in my head, Roger, when we were driving down from Washington to California, we got our very first, you know, mailbox money check from our tenants. And we're like, oh my gosh, like we're getting, we're making like 300 bucks a month after we pay all the expenses and the mortgage. Like, you know, if we did this on purpose, or I'm sorry, if we did this on accident, imagine what would happen if we did this on purpose, Roger, right? And so that's when like the, the, the gears started clicking. So instead of doing the thing that most people do is they save up money to buy a single family home for themselves, we uh, did the opposite. We saved up money to buy rental property. Uh, and because we recognized that like, if we moved to the Bay Area, yeah, there'd be plenty of appreciation in housing if we bought a property and just stayed there and would appreciate. But who knew? We wanted to learn how to rent out property on purpose. And so we just rented our places in the Bay Area and hopped around, you know, as we saw fit, and then started investing out in the Midwest, right? Um, that way, because we were able to very easily afford properties out there at the time. Um, and so that was kind of our philosophy. Like we, we, we were in, you know, the East Bay for a lot of times, like we were in Dublin, Walnut Creek, a little bit in Pleasanton. Uh, and then we ended up hopping over finally to Brentwood in the last year there, uh, because we bought a house because of the extremely low rates and we were sick of paying really high rents. So we ended up buying a house and then we sold it a year and a half later for like a $250,000 gain. And then that became kind of the way that we're living our lifestyle right now. So maybe too much detail, but that is what it is. That's our story uh, about the Bay. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 303-333-3333. 
305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. Well, you know what I love about your story is that you have to be thankful for the fact that uh, for the global financial crisis and the fact that your wife ended up being so much upside down on that condo, because at the end of the day, that was fairly it was unintended. But that's what drove you couldn't sell it. So let's rent it now all of a sudden. So that's what's kind of funny about your story. And then, of course, you were smart enough to kind of see the opportunity. What kind of doctor is your wife? Yeah, so my my wife is a naturopathic doctor, um, but she does more uh, on the functional side and she does a lot of consulting because she had a a brick and mortar business that was doing well um, and then COVID hit. And so then she converted to do everything online. You know, she started doing more online consulting and getting her online business going and and things like that. Uh, And so that's what she's doing today at this point. Where was the brick and mortar business? It was in Brentwood. Okay. I've got it. Okay. So I was working uh, for the San Ramon office in PG&E and then she was working in Brentwood. So, you know, we had to find like a nice place in Pleasanton or Dublin or Pleasant Hill even um, for us to split the commute times. Got it. Okay. Wow. All right, man. So where in the Midwest did you buy these houses? And I guess like what led you to the Midwest? How did you choose the markets and what did all of that, what was that progression and and what year did you start doing that? Yeah. You know, I, this is terrible. And I really wish I could tell the audience out there um, that I had a scientific way of picking what market to go to. But to be honest, uh, I kind of did it backwards. I was talking with people at a real estate meetup group who were successfully investing out of state, and I wanted to find out what markets they were investing in. And they were investing in the Midwest, in Kansas City, Indianapolis, and uh, Cleveland. And Indianapolis just happened to be the first one that I looked at. And you know how, uh, Roger, in these real estate markets, once you start making a few contacts, you start getting this momentum, right? You start talking with a bunch of people that they know, and the network gets deeper and deeper, and the more you get into one market, it's just kind of like this snowball. And so I just kind of stuck with the Indianapolis market. And then, you know, after I <laughs> did some more studying and uh, did some more research on bigger pockets and, and, you know, on podcasts and everything, I found out that it was actually a great place to be with good demographics, good job diversity, great median income uh, versus the, you know, the, the average rental prices in, in Indianapolis. So I ended up being a, a, a giant blessing for us. So we just kind of stumbled into it, you know. Uh, that's that's how it, it happened. Um, the, the prices were right, and you know the people that we knew at the time were doing it well, and we were watching them and and counting on them for guidance. Got it. Yep, and it still is a good market. Um, yeah. What was the price range, and were these uh, you know were these fixers, or how do how do you deal with that and management and all that good stuff? Yeah, you know a lot of these things were actually. Um, they were they, these properties were kind of a mix. Like the very first property that I bought was a turnkey with my own cash from my IRA account, right? Um, I, I you know rolled over some four hundred one k from a previous employer into an IRA, a rollover IRA, and then just bought a property outright with my retirement money, and then that gave me the momentum to start like flying out to the market. And man, you should you should have seen me, uh, Roger. Like back in the day, um, I was. Uh, coming into the office early, about an hour every early every day, just to focus my time on the business. I would, you know, I would beat traffic and get in early, spend an hour planning my trips and getting contacts ready and doing underwriting and doing everything that I could do that I need to do in the business in that first hour of the day. And uh, essentially, I assembled a list of people that I kept finding over and over again. Their names came up on Bigger Pockets a lot. Uh, or I heard them on podcasts and I started following them and the people that were working with them. And I just basically targeted them and reached out to them over the phone and set up a, a time for me to fly out to India and meet them in person. Uh, and that's kind of how things work is, you know, if you're trying to do this from afar, you can do that, but you're going to go way further because people in the market you're trying to invest are going to take you way seriously if you fly out to meet them. And if you take the time to set up, you know, uh, 20 meetings with individuals or 15 to 20 meetings with someone over a long weekend or over a week that you take off from work. Um, that's really going to show your professionalism a lot and, and how serious you are. So that's exactly what we did. Uh, and we, we made that happen for us. And, you know, um, Roger, if you don't mind, uh, I, I'd like to also 
cover just a few things that some listeners out there may be able to take away if you're, if you're there in the same position trying to get started. Go ahead. Yeah. And that would be for me, uh, I'm, I really believe in what I call the four C's. The four C's are the way that any entrepreneur or any person who wants to build something or get to a goal in their life uh, needs to focus on. The four C's in my mind is consistency, clarity, coaching, and connections or community. Okay, Each one of those four C's, you got to lead with one of them. But all four of those things is going to lead you to success in whatever it is that you're going to pursue, right? So pick one of those C's for you to lean into, and then the other three will eventually come. And so for me, it was, for instance, consistency. I sat down and did an hour every morning to focus on my goals and get to where I wanted to go. I had to do that because I didn't have any other time. Otherwise, I had a busy job. I had a relationship at home. We had stuff that we were doing. So I wanted to make sure that I could hit my goal, but I relied on my ability to really be consistent. That's just the way my brain works. To be able to pick up coaches, right? Find a community to plug into and get really clear in my goal. But that might not work for everyone, right? Maybe a lead indicator for someone out there will be clarity. Maybe you're a person who really likes to set goals and you have this intense desire once you set a goal to go after it and and drive that home. Well, if you have extreme clarity on what you want to get, then you're probably going to start attracting coaches and community. And then eventually you're going to have to start setting up a consistent routine to eventually get to your goal. And so, you know, the, the same situation goes for whether you lead with community, like you have people around you that are already doing it. Maybe you just spend more time with them. And then the other three things start popping up. Or if you really, really want to, you can hire a coach. And then that coach, you better believe they're going to force you to become really clear on what you're getting, set up a consistent routine and also get yourself plugged into a community. So Whatever one of those four C's you do, know that all four will help get you to where you want to go. But all you got to do is start with one and the rest will follow. So that's just some advice out there for some people who are getting started there on mindset. Got it. Uh, I think we're, we're words of wisdom. When you flew out there uh, to India, you said we. Who was we at that time? My wife. Oh, so she, works, so she works with you in this. Okay, He does. She is very much the visionary. But let me tell you, Roger, you know, there are so many bullets that I have prevented because of her. And another thing that we're really big on is working with your spouse and plugging in your spouse because your spouse is good at something that you're not good at. She is awesome at reading people. And so we sit down with the property manager and she shakes her head and go, "Mm -mm, no, I don't trust this person you better believe I'm going to be listening to her, right? And that is the end of it right there. So leveraging that thing that your spouse does well, even if it's on a consultancy basis, is one way to really elevate yourself to success and avoid, you know, avoid situations that can get you in trouble. The the first one that you bought with you, the first turnkey property, Ira, how much did you pay and what was rent? <laughs> it was, and it still is, the worst property that I have. That's funny. Anyway, in any event, <laughs> it was, uh, we paid uh, about $63,000 for it. Um, and it's on the west side of Indianapolis. And the rent originally was 750 bucks. And since I picked it up as a turnkey and I didn't really know the PMs that well, right? This was the one trip that I went without my wife. Yeah, we got, you know, the 750 a month. We got that for a few months, but then the tenant moved out and trashed the place. Mm, love it. And when I turned around and started building up my network, Roger, so six months later, thank goodness that I had bought other properties between now and then, because otherwise I would have, who knows, I maybe would have given up on that market or, or start, done something else. But <laughs> when I talked to my agent, you know, who I had built a relationship with to buy homes, not out of the turnkey system. I asked how much that property was going for with it being flipped in the condition that it would be. And it would only have sold for $35,000. And just now, right, it's starting to turn around after this hugely inflationary market right now. It's just now starting to make sense to where it's recovering when I paid for it. And this was back in 2017, late 2017. So late, late 2017, when you had the conversation or late 2017, when you bought it. That's when we bought it was late 2017. I see. Okay. Yeah. And in 2018, we kind of went on this buying spree, right? We, we bought a whole bunch of properties, 
you know, that, that eventually became a 1031 for us to buy our own apartment complex as a JV with a few other partners. Um, and then from there, we ended up getting coaches and, and getting into the syndication world and raising capital, all that good stuff. Got it. Okay. And so um, tell me what the multifamily, the point of departure there. So like what was first acquisition and how did you uh, meet your partners and, and what are, what roles are played and however you want to answer the question? Yeah. Well, you know, the first multifamily property that we did, I would never do again. Uh, it was it was an awful deal. And just right now, it's starting to turn into a great deal just because that's how real estate works. But we made every mistake in the book, Roger. And we can talk about that if you want to. But sure. the second property, the second property was much cleaner. We, we knew what was going on. I had more connections in the market. Uh, and I had more experience, frankly, like, you know, uh, doing due diligence and understanding what the red flags were and, and passing on a few before actually landing on something. And then, you know, from there, we just started doing a whole bunch of small JVs and then syndications and everything. But man, that first deal, Roger, like we, it was an 18 unit that we had picked up from a wholesaler that normally had done, done business with us on the single family side. So he happened to have this property um, out there and he gave us 15 days to do due diligence on it. And this property was in such bad shape that there were people living in the basement illegally, right? Which And they were living week to week. So they... The owner didn't even have a property manager. He was driving 30 miles across town to go in and door knock to collect rents from people. That's how bad it was. And I kid you not, Roger, like things were falling apart on this thing. And while we were under contract, which only lasted like 35, 40 days, the the seller through the broker, the broker said, I'm kind of embarrassed to ask you this, but the seller wanted to see if you could forward him three thousand dollars to fix a furnace that just went out for one of the tenants that's in the building oh that that could be a red flag <laughs> but you know but yeah. in itself itself you know not uh, let me guess it was just so you thought it was so it was such a great deal it was super super cheap so you probably thought you could you could oh, yeah. go wrong yeah i was just like well you know we know we need to fix that anyway you know no no big deal like we know we're gonna go in there and fix all the hvacs so we have the capital for that fine you know no, no problem but you know really like it's these types of things that you learn right is that that is an indication of how management has been going right and so while that's just a symptom right it's not the actual cause of the problem and the cause of the problem was much much greater we we you know roger like on this one we we had you know six months of just trying to get people out so we could work on the property so we had no income for over a year on this and meanwhile, we were paying a mortgage, we were spending money to try to rehab things. And then we had contractors who we didn't quite know that were stealing from us. It, it was just insane. There was a ton of stuff going on in this property that like it was pulling our hair out because we were all, all the partners were from California too. And we all had full-time jobs. So communication was an issue. There was stress. We were trying to get money to do the rehab work. And then we had contractors stealing from us. It was just one of the worst properties and the most hard Thing that we were doing and again guys like this is where the the strength of your spouse comes in because if you're having a really hard time with these properties having a spouse who can help support you and give you encouragement and understand and be there with you while you're making the decision to still pull the trigger that is that's priceless and without her support i don't know how i would have made it i think we would have sold roger for a huge loss and and would have licked our wounds on that one but now it's a, it's a great, it's a cash flowing property. Um, it's got plenty of upside because it's really close to downtown in Indy. It's got commercial spaces on the bottom that are going to be leased out you know, or have been leased out. And so we're, we're, we're doing some, some really good stuff with the building right now. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's terrible. It was, no, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's, it's fantastic, man. It's great. Are you kidding me? I, 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 I love it. How many partners were there or are there? There's, there's still, there's three other partners on this property and all of them are people that I met through coworkers, right? At work. And so, yeah, we're, we're still working through the details of this thing and, you know, trying to get it ready for sale eventually. Uh, but right now um, we're pretty happy with the performance of the property and we picked it up. I mean, Roger, like if I told you the price, I'll just tell you, yeah, please. we bought it for $350,000, an 18 unit building. Wow. So, you know, dude, you know what you are? You're a human being. That's what you are. <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, 
this is your podcast. It's not mine, but uh, trust me, I have done similar. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and, and you don't know what you don't know. And, and I'll tell you what I, I, at the time for all, a lot of mistakes I made, I beat myself up mercifully mm-hmm. and that's a whole other conversation. But I finally like have been able to like forgive myself. It's taken me a lot of years to forgive myself. I think you're much better at it. Just judging by this conversation and just to eventually go, you know what? I didn't know it wasn't it was it wasn't at that time you know, you, you were a chemical engineer you worked at PG you know you had to learn but here's a question did you have a coach and slash mentor kind of side by side helping you determine whether or not to make that purchase or no you know that was another big thing that I probably needed to have in place so the answer to that question is no and here's the thing. I was hoping that one of the partners that was on board with me, uh, who had been doing a whole bunch of flips in the Bay Area, that would that would be the person to turn to who would help with some of the rehab decisions and the big capital expenditure pieces. And so, you know, working with him, I was hoping to learn that. And so we thought we had the knowledge we needed in-house, right? That's what it was. And unfortunately, that was the problem. We, we never even thought to seek a mentor out to ask them what they thought of this property. And as soon as we did, like, you know, obviously we'd already bought the property, but when I showed them this, they kind of shook their head and they're like, well, that's a lesson, isn't it? <laughs> and, and he, you know, he said, because these mentors would have told me, yeah, if I had seen this, I, I would have advised you to run for the hills. Yeah. You paid three fifty, and it was probably worth nothing. Um, yeah. Yeah. But because of how much upside down, although, you know what? Hey, guess what? Bottom line is that's not true because of at the end of the day, look where it is now. But um, yeah. I, you know what? Again, you're a human being. I mean, that's how, that's what we do. That's how we learn. Did the relationship between you and the other three or between amongst any of you, did it get contentious? You better believe it did. You better believe it. There was a point in time where, you know, everyone was acting out of their best interests, um, but it was frustrating because we were losing money and having to put more in and having to find private money from friends and family to help do the project, right? And, and help complete the project and get a refinance in. And, you know, uh, while I wouldn't say that the relationship right now is excellent, we at least are on speaking terms right now and we are continuing to move forward the project in, in civil with each other. But we still aren't, we aren't working with each other on other deals. Um, and I totally understand that. It's not, it's okay. It's, sometimes it's all about like the personality fit and sometimes there's just too much history and too much has happened for you to continue, but we're still civil with each other. We understand, you know, that business is business. And, you know, once it's the right time to sell and we get this thing completed, then we can go our separate ways and, and move on. But we're, we're civil with each other, but man, it was, it was, it was getting really hard. Like I was almost to the point of needing counseling, right? Cause yeah, just there's cultural differences between me and the other investor and yeah, but it, it worked out in the end. I learned so much from the whole process, especially in working with my wife and, and having her be my confidant too. Some people, I've read people or read things that say the following, and I'm not here to say it's true or not true, but it just was interesting to me, is that some people will maintain the only way to learn anything is by doing it. And Mm -hmm. so you could read books, you can go to Harvard, you could do whatever it is. You just, you cannot learn anything until you do it. So I'm not saying that that's true or not, but I'll I'll tell you what's been my experience. And, uh, you know, my my business is advertising when I'm not dabbling in, in real estate where I'm spending a lot of my, most of my time. But I had to go and do really stupid things for a long time. And, and that's how I learned at the end of the day. So I, I don't know. So tell me about, well, this is, I'm going to, just before, so I don't forget, and this is going to make this nonlinear, but I'm just so curious to ask. And also for listener's sake, tell me you're in Europe. Tell me mm-hmm. how long you've been, how long you're going to be and that. Cause I, that I am one of the people that is absolutely jealous. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I we get that a lot. And, you know, I will say right now that we are in month two of four okay. um, in Europe. The first month, actually a two and a half. Uh, the first month that we spent, w- that was in Portugal. Uh, the next month was Greece. And now we're in Ireland and England. Um, and then we'll be moving on to uh, do a cruise to Norway and then in Iceland in the final month. And, you know, 
the reason that we do this, Roger, is um, we want to inspire people and we also want to add things to our bucket list of experiences, things that we've always wanted to do and we figured now is the time to do it. We wanted to put ourselves, Roger, in a place where we were living the abundant life right now, right now. There is no reason for us, where we were at the time, for us to delay gratification to a point where as soon as our financial goal for financial independence was met, for us to go and do that. Now, I'm not saying that people should just drop everything they have and start going traveling about irresponsibly. That's not what happened here. What happened with us, Rogers, we tackled financial independence in three layers. There's three degrees of freedom that we talk about over, you know, on, on you know, with us. The first layer is location freedom. If you can enable location freedom, many people can do that with their full-time jobs. That's awesome. As soon as you have the ability to travel anywhere you want and continue to live your life, that is a layer of freedom that you gain by putting yourself up in that position, right? The second layer is time freedom. And towards the end there, I was kind of getting myself in both location and time freedom with my full-time job. I was able to work from anywhere uh, and continue to do what I do as long as I got the results done uh, in the time that I could specify for myself. So I, in a way, earned myself some time and location freedom. And what happened with the financial freedom piece is that, Roger, you know we're collecting passive income as real estate investors over time, especially as you do JVs and you do your own properties. Now, in the Bay Area, we were spending about $10,000 a month baseline just to live between the mortgage and everything else. Out here, Roger, when we're traveling around, our expenses are half that. We're living in Airbnbs around the rest of the United States and around the world. And because the mortgage rates and the, the property values and the rents out in the US and California are just insane, this enabled financial freedom for us. It put our expenses below what it took for us to live, right? Because we have this location freedom. So these three layers is one of the main reasons why we're able to live this life is that we first looked at location freedom, then got our time freedom, and then eventually unlocked financial freedom. And by doing this, Roger, we are living the abundant life right now. And that energy just reverberates out. We wanted to live an abundant life, so we attracted abundant people towards us. And I, I, I don't know how to explain this to you, Roger, but as soon as I left my full-time job, I left in September, and in October, we were under contract in, I think, 120 units across three properties. And we closed them all in January, February. Of this year. And, and yes, and that was that was within the last eight months. Yep. And, and uh, congratulations. And those deals are those syndicated deals in, in you as the GP? Or, and are there any other partners? Or I, I clearly get it ain't with the guys you were in that in, indie deal with. So what does that look like? And where yeah, are they yeah. and all that? They're, I mean, they're still in that deal with me. But yes, these, these deals um, are not with them. They're with other people that I was talking to that were interested in our story. And so they're just, they're just joint ventures of people that I've been educating and talking to for many years from, you know, relationships with my wife and also, you know, people that we, that we ran across at work, you know, in, in, at PG&E. And so, you know, these folks are repeat investors. And so we've done a couple of them were JVs. And then a couple were syndications that we raised capital from, from 15, 16 different people uh, and set up our own paperwork and did that way. So yeah, a lot of incredible growth. And this all happened because of those four C's and focusing on the three degrees of freedom. And then where are these and, and how, yeah, where are each of the properties? All of these properties are in either Indiana or Texas. We like to focus in Indiana because that's where I have all of my, my team, my property managers, my boots on the ground team, uh, contractors, basically everyone I need is in Indy. So I'm trying to build in that market uh, vertically as much as I can. Uh, but, you know, I also realize that there's other markets out there. So, you know, in, in Texas, there's great deals out there. We got into an Austin really early on with some great people and partners that we met who are doing great things out there and we just raise capital for them and, and help to keep, keep our investors money deployed. So the one in Austin, you just raised money for and somebody else is running the property. Correct. Actually, there's three deals in Austin that we raised for back in April, um, last year as well. So I forgot about those two, but yes, 
Those deals uh, are in San Antonio and Austin. So we have two in San Antonio, two in Austin and one in San Antonio. And, and a key thing, um, maybe this is a tip for some of the more experienced investors out there. What we like to do, Roger, is we like to buy either in Texas or in Indiana. We like to buy these like, you know, 36 to 64 unit apartment complexes. And we like to buy properties that are right next to each other. And I think you know where I'm going with this. Yes, yeah, so you get efficiencies. If, yes, if you have one property manager in one of those buildings and you acquire the property next door where literally all you have to do is tear the fence down, right? Now you can combine operations and make that 44 unit, make it 88 units, right? With the with the one next door. And once you do that, you open yourself up to a whole bunch of new buyers and get that really nice cap compression at the end. On the ones in Indy, are you then the lead GP or were you raising money for another GP? Yeah, for Indiana, I really pride myself in saying that I source the deal, I raise capital for the deal, and I asset manage the deal myself. Okay. So we have boots on the ground partners that we loop in and we have uh, a capital raise partner as well that we use to plug into this, but I brought in more than half the capital myself um, as well as my own money into this and we're all running it together as a team. So me and the two other general partners, um, we each have our roles and uh, and we're really enjoying the way that it's working. And that team is being repeated with a bunch of different properties. We just closed on a smaller unit, a smaller property a couple of weeks ago, actually. And we're looking to acquire the one right next to it. Um, and then we're always looking at stuff in Louisville as well. Um, that one, there's property coming out up there and, and just a bunch of stuff that we're, that we're excited about. Got it. And, and the ones in Indy, how many units per building and what vintage approximately? Yeah, so we're generally in the 70s and 80s range. Um, so they are like C plus to C to B minus type assets. Um, and like I said, they, we like to buy properties in like the 36 to 64 unit range just because um, the buyer, like the, the seller pool is a, lot, a little bit less sophisticated uh, and we can command higher, you know, uh, better deals. Basically, we can we can get lower pricing per unit, uh, and then once we combine the the operations with nearby properties, then we can kind of you know change that when we end up selling the properties of portfolio. In in those deals in Indy, were they on the market, or how did how did you find those deals? Yep, some of them were on market deals, and others we sourced off we, we sourced off market. Uh, but the one that I'm thinking of particularly was an off-market source, but then we contacted them a day after they had listed the property with a broker. So we had to work with the broker, unfortunately. But we're always looking uh, for off-market properties and talking with great property management companies who know sellers that want to sell um, and, and doing what we can to buy properties next to where we are, we are already established. So how, and, and that makes certainly, you know, smart economic sense. So I guess just like a blocking and tackling question. So you, you've acquired, I mean, you've been busy this year. I mean, you made some pretty significant acquisitions in your asset managing the ones in Indy. I guess my question is, how much time is that taking you on a weekly basis, you know, since you've been in Europe? You know, I'm not going to lie here, Roger. It is it's it's quite a a, a burden. It's quite a, a workload. But we're dedicated to the investors and our partners. So the answer to that question is as long as it takes. And um, you know, on top of that, we have always you know we we've always got communications going out, and we're looking at deals all the time. So I would say that my time is split fifty fifty between asset management and acquisitions and marketing to try to you know work with new investors and try to get people more into what we do and, and what our vision is. And um, I would say that on average, we're doing about 50 to 60 hours a week is my, is my and, and I think that that has to be there. We're, we're looking to hire, obviously. Uh, so we're, you know, we're looking for good people and we're building systems to help make it more efficient for people. We already have a couple of VAs right now that are, that are helping us with a lot of stuff. Um, but we like our structure and we wanna make sure that we scale organically and be respectful of our investors' money as well. So um, we want to make sure that when we grow, we grow lean, we grow efficiently, and we grow, you know, in, in a in, in an organic way. You're an honest man, and I appreciate that. Is the 
cadence, just out of curiosity, right? Because I'm like just putting mm-hmm. myself in your situation because I, I, I absolutely love to travel. And I think we talked yeah. about this before we started recording where uh, my wife and I were kind of we're literally in the one yard line. You know, our second son is going to go to college. We're like, oh, my God, we're going to be able to do what you're doing. <laughs> but but so are you do you and your wife like, you know, given the time, right? So you're like eight or nine hours ahead of me. Do you guys find that you're like kicking around these cool places you're going, you know, like till two or three in the afternoon or four and and then just starting to work? Like, you know, is everybody's kind of waking up and working here or isn't that kind of rhyme or reason to the schedule? You know, I love this question. So insightful. So I have to compliment you on asking a really great question. Thank you. This was this was something that we thought about very early on and one of the reasons why we came to Europe. And it's a powerful question because it's, it's leaning into life with intention. And we had this intention, Roger. So what we do is on our work days, which is Tuesday, Thursday, or Tuesday, yeah, it's Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and sometimes on Fridays, um, we basically are working uh, from the moment we wake up so usually about 8 a.m. to do our focus activities, which is, you know, anything that um, that needs to be done in the business before we start hopping on calls, that gets done between 8 and 12. And then from 12 to 1 or 2, we're, we're having lunch and, and, and taking a break with each other. Then from 3 on, from 3 to midnight, uh, and sometimes even into like 1 or 2 in the morning, we're doing calls, right? We're doing things with people in the United States, talking with investors, our property managers, our partners, things like that. And that's a really great balance for us because we're both night people. You know, we, we, we do well at nighttime. And so if we have the morning to focus on our on our active tasks, right, that gives us time to prepare for having conversations in the evening. And if we bunch up all of our Calendly calls so that it's on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, that gives us Friday through Monday to really recover and enjoy the city we're in and really refresh ourselves and give us perspective so that by the time Tuesday comes around, we've taken Monday to really reflect on what needs to happen for the rest of the week. And then we go into it with intention and priority. And of course, you know, we're meeting with our virtual assistants on Monday, uh, Wednesday and Friday also. So, you know, the, the machine keeps rolling, even though we're not really working per se on those days on Monday and Friday, but that's kind of how we balance life. And this this approach of having all the morning to yourself to either go out and have some breakfast and have some lunch even and take half the day off, even though working a full day, that's something that we've really taken to heart and we've really enjoyed. So great question. Well, thank you. And I appreciate that. And uh, I, you know what, I'm, you know, I'm sure it's absolutely incredibly cool. And, you know, the reality is this too. So I think you're in Dublin, right? right now? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, the reality is like, if you weren't, let's say you, you didn't have this routine and you were there just hanging out. The truth of the matter is there's, you know, and I, and I know I've not been to Dublin. I would love to go there sometime, but I <laughs> do know that it's a small town. The reality is as a tourist, let's say you were hundred percent vacation, no work, quite frankly, in four to five days outside of maybe going to see some castles out in the countryside, this and that, some point you're, you're pretty much going to see it anyway. And so I don't think you're missing a whole heck of a lot is what, is what I'm kind of, yeah, you know, saying, you know, you know, Roger, actually, um, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about this too, because, you know, if you end up doing something like that, you will burn yourself out and you will have, right. uh, it'll be a blur. Like you're going to go yep. through this. New, so, so what we do, Roger, is like in the morning, my wife and I, like once we arrive at a place or it's tradition, you know, when we're waiting at the airport from the previous place, going to the next place, we, we look on Google maps and we look on TripAdvisor on things that we want to see and food that we want to eat. And then we drop pins and we also use Pinterest too, but we drop pins in the places that we want to go visit. Right. And what we end up doing is one day we'll do one restaurant we want to go to for lunch, right. That's open during lunchtime. And then we'll do one like touristy thing or one, you know, thing to go see or once one or two, if they're on the way. Right. And that way, you know, Monday is dedicated to, you know, going to the park. Right. And then also having lunch right next to the park. And then the next day, um, you know, we get our rest, we do our work, we wake up and then we go out and we go see, you know, the statue or the spire in Dublin. Right. And then we go to a coffee shop right next door that we wanted that we really want to see. Right. That way it's super balanced and you can remember and really enjoy 
the city that you're in. Because this is my pet peeve for people to go to on vacation and they're there for a week and they try to see everything. It's ridiculous. And they exhaust themselves yeah. and it's like work. It's like more work. Like the whole point is to settle back, enjoy the culture that you're in, take in the food, the sights, the smells, everything that, that they have to offer and just enjoy, you know? And, and that's that's kind of what we're doing right now. This, this fantastic balance between being contented on bucket list adventures and also getting getting our stuff done, you know, like getting a lot of work done and being efficient while doing it. Yeah, I mean, we've all talked to people that said, hey, I'm going to be in Europe. We're going to see Europe for two weeks. And they're like in Rome and Florence, <laughs> Paris and London oh, and Amsterdam. And they're there for 10 days. I'm like, well, okay. Yeah, it's like yeah. Anyway. that makes me really sad because it's going to be a whirlwind adventure and it's going to be stress. And yeah, it's that, that's unfortunate. I would much rather hear someone say, I'm going two weeks to Rome or I'm going two weeks to Paris and staying in Paris, right? And really savoring what that means, you know, not not trying to make a whole whirlwind tour and, and maximize this stuff. That's that's no way to do it. Uh, agreed. Well, so, so in another couple months, because you said you're in, I think, two and a half of four months, what happens then? Yes. So good question. We're going to come back to the United States and we're going to be in Indianapolis uh, for probably a good three months until winter time. And then there, then it's traditional for us to go visit our, our family. Uh, and then after that, we're eyeing next places to go. So we're looking at um, Bulgaria. Uh, we're looking at Croatia. We're looking at Turkey, like that part of the world. And then we really want to go to Japan. And actually that was originally where we should have been this year, but Japan had their borders closed. So we're probably going to end up looking to target Japan in the spring uh, of 2024 or in the fall of 2023. So that's what that's what's happening next. But otherwise, every time we go to our markets, we end up getting a deal under contract or building an excellent relationship that leads to something bigger. So we're excited about doing that, coming back to the U.S., spending time in our market, stabilizing and continuing to, uh, you know, refine and sharpen our NOI on our properties uh, and then and then continuing the cycle again. Got it. Well, my goodness gracious, Derek, what a fantastic conversation. And so how would one uh, contact you? Yeah. So if anyone wants to learn more about us um, and we got to have you on our podcast as, as well, Roger, because I want to hear more about your story. You can go to our podcast, which is Elevate Your Equity. Um, so wherever you listen to podcasts, you can get that. Um, or you can go to our website, which is elevateequity.org. And for those folks who are working a corporate job and looking to do what we're doing, which is enable those three degrees of freedom, I have a an ebook that's got five pillars that will help enable you to do that. So please just go to elevateequity.org forward slash podcast gift, all one word. Um, and you can grab that ebook for free and, and, and learn more about what we do and how we did it. Got it. Well, you know, I'm happy to appear and, and you can I can tell you right now the title of the podcast that I'm on with you could be titled The Dumbest Things Humanly Imaginable That One Can Do in Real Estate. <laughs> I like to. I'd like to put a positive spin on that, Roger, and say <laughs> how unintelligent things leads to incredible results, or something, something great like that. That's my. That's my thinking already. Listen, man, it's your podcast. You could spin it however you want. <laughs> Derek, uh, great podcast, and uh, my hats off to you. And I'm jealous. Hey, thank you so much, Roger, for having me on. This was such a blast. And I got to say, too, that uh, there's not very many people that ask such incited and and, and well or well thought out questions. And I really appreciate you listening uh, to what your your podcast guests have to say and, and bringing out the best of them. So all thanks to you. Very much appreciated. I'll talk to you soon. All right. See you. Bye. Bye.